1975, Christmas Eve. Tommy Ziegler is just kind of your average guy. It pretty much untangles the lives of half of this small town in Florida. Four people ended up dead in a furniture store with the lights off at different times during the evening. Tommy Ziegler is rushed off to the hospital, went in for emergency surgery, and later is booked for murder. Your heart kind of swings, you know, from one end to the other. You know, he did it, he didn't do it. It's been like going to a time portal every time. I go back into the original documents or speak to someone who was there. Well, my mindset when we started the trial is we think we have a decent chance of winning this trial. We thought and still believe we have an innocent client. There's no one man can shoot eight guns in four seconds expending 30 shells or whatever. I don't care who he is. Once, as an investigator, you prove to yourself that this man is literally being crucified by the state, it ruins your own life. I mean, I've served in the service. I've served in Vietnam. I've represented a lot of people, done a lot of things. It has been, that was probably the worst moment of my life, is standing beside Tommy Ziegler, believing in my heart that he was innocent, and have the judge sentence him to die. I don't want to be let go. I want that new trial. I want those 12 members of that jury to stand up and say not guilty. Medill Justice Project students have been examining the case for five weeks. Terry Hadley, Ziegler's original defense attorney, has lived it for more than 40 years. People say, it's so hard to defend the guilty. Well, the guilty, the easiest people in the world to defend. Because all you have to do as a defense lawyer, if you know your client's guilty, you don't want to plead for whatever the reason, is to make sure the state does their job. Make sure that they, with compelling evidence beyond a reasonable doubt, convict your client. You walk away with a clean conscience, life is good, justice has been done. The toughest thing in the world is to defend an innocent man or a woman. Because then you're defending someone you know or believe has not committed a crime. And you're doing everything with heart and soul to keep them from being convicted. And when you lose that, and that's what cured me of criminal law, when you lose a case, especially when the death penalty is involved with a person you think is innocent. We meet with Terry Hadley and his wife for dinner in Hawthorne, Florida, two hours north of Winter Garden. Over fried gator and frog legs, we learn about the case from the man who has stood beside Tommy Ziegler from the beginning. This is Dillard Street, okay? You got the Ziegler furniture store here with diagonal parking in front. The driveway that you hear everybody talking about coming down the side. Then there was a fenced area like this around the back of the Ziegler store. The fence line ran right off the end of the back of the store. All right, according to Felton Thomas, they came and drove around the side of the Ziegler store and drove straight up here. Right here, there's a three-foot concrete block wall. You can't drive over a wall. For our investigation, each of us has kind of picked an area where we want to focus on, and I've been trying to focus on Felton Thomas because his story just does not make sense to mm -hmm. me. His testimony, nothing really made sense, and he's changed things since then. And um, So he originally says that he, when they drove in, his first deposition was that they drove in across the store, right? Mm -hmm. And then down that way. Mm -hmm. um, do you know 
Like, was that brought up during the trial? Of course. Um, did anyone bring up that wall and how that... Of course like, we did. Did anyone challenge that? And well, what I, was their response? We introduced the evidence, the photographs of the wall. And no, it was not challenged oh. or they didn't say anything? No. We've got to find this photograph. Oh, right. They just didn't even talk about it? They just basically ignored it. Discounted it. They ignored it. They just discounted it. Well, I feel like a big thing, too, is like like the jurors are, you know, how long was this case going on? And there's so much information being thrown at them. Mm -hmm. And like even this, for we're focusing on this case, is like hard for us to visualize and sit down Mm -hmm. and kind of focus and figure Mm -hmm. out exactly what happened. Well, the same thing was happening to him. I mean, there's so much... There's so much. There was exactly. so much. There was so many conflicting pieces so this here. This could have just not even. It could have just gone over everyone's head. That, that, I think that's so much of the problem is mm-hmm. that so much of it just kind of evaporated into the air because there was so much contention about so many right. things. Convoluted. You 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 just can't. You cannot delve into all of it. Here's the frustrating thing for me, and I've lived with this case obviously a long time. I know for a fact that I do not know exactly what happened inside that story that night. And what is your relationship with Tommy like now? Like, oh, we're, well, I write to him two, three times a month. He writes to me two, three times a month. You Never know. misses sending us a birthday card. I have, I have a sister, a younger sister that died, and her birthday was May 5th, and Tommy writes me and says, I'm having uh, a, prayer, a, a prayer mass for Kim, Kim my yeah. sister, every mm-hmm. May 5th. Because she used to go to visit him and would take his mom to visit him yeah. before his mom passed away. So um, I, I just think it's such an injustice, but I'm, I'm afraid it's an injustice that won't ever be fixed. Well, my mindset when we started the trial is we think we have a decent chance of winning this trial. We thought and still believe we have an innocent client. And we went at it hammer and tong. I mean, we fought all the way. And when the verdict came in, it's the most crushing thing that's ever happened to me in my life. I mean, I've served in the service. I've served in Vietnam. I've represented a lot of people, done a lot of things. It has been, that was probably the worst moment of my life is standing beside Tommy Ziegler, believing in my heart that he was innocent, and have the judge sentence him to die. My dream is to have Tommy Ziegler walk out, a free man, and come to my home here in Cross Creek, and walk the grass as a free man. You think Mm -hmm. about it, hear the birds sing as a free man, with Mm -hmm. nobody looking over your shoulder. Mm -hmm. I, I fear it's a dream that will go unrecognized, but I hope not. into the trial, Ziegler's lawyers were faced with little time to prepare and a lot of evidence to sort through. The massive amount of information inundated not only the jury, but also members of the defense team. Some critical testimony never made it into court. The witness accounts of Ken and Linda Roach, a couple who drove past the crime scene on Christmas Eve, is one such testimony. 
we head over to what was once the Ziegler Family Furniture Store to get a feel for the layout of the crime scene and to meet with the Roaches to hear their recollection of that night. So if you guys look out on your right, this is the uh, Tri-City Center shopping mall where the TG&Y Food World and Turn right at the traffic light. We're located. So we're right turning here. right on Dillard. Wow, okay. That is right across the street. Wow. There's like nothing. I was not expecting it to be that close to that turn. Though it's a thrift store now, what once was the Ziegler Furniture Store looks pretty much the same as it did in 1975. You can still see a bullet hole in a window pane at the front of the store. A blunt reminder of the bloody history of the building. So there would have been a desk, a counter over here in front of those shoes. Mm -hmm. That would have been where the cashier was, or the cash register where the gun, money and stuff. Over here is where... The mom would have been so Hey, how you doing? This here is the back hallway into the store that um, Tommy had walked through and then had uh, allegedly been hit over the head. Um, it looks like, you know, the store is, the store's hallway is pretty wide right now, but we have to remember that there was a lot of furniture in this hallway, so they kept any extra chairs or pieces of furniture that didn't look good in the storeroom. Um, on the main floor. Um, so, you know, even still, like, it's empty now, and you could probably fit, you know, barely two people walking side by side. I think that says a lot about the width. Um, and then once you're in here, you, the room is, just kind of opens up. The whole furniture store is just one big block of space, and, um, you know, there's, there's some room for um, some action, some activity to be going on. But then, you know, all that stuff happens. Tommy ends up walking back into um, the hallway. There's a cabinet somewhere in here where he says he leaves a 357 Magnum that only he, Curtis Dunaway, and his parents knew about. He grabs the Magnum, comes back out into the hallway. Um, you know, the, the guys who he says hit him or somewhere in this room. Um, he's at this point, uh, you know, flailing the gun. I think he's lost his glasses at this point. Um, I think he shoots, um, is knocked down to the floor and then loses consciousness because he's shot in the stomach. Um, you know, even just being here right now, I feel real hazy. Um, just about the, the transition of space. You got this really tight little hallway and then you step through this doorway and you get the full store. You know, it's a little overwhelming after all the work we've been doing on the case. This is the first time I've ever been in this store and mm -hmm. it's a little bit, yeah. a little bit weird, you know, yeah. knowing yeah. what happened. Uh, yeah. But uh, there's no way that man done that, no way. That's Ken Roach. Ken and Linda were on their way to Linda's mother's house for a Christmas Eve dinner of scallops and oysters. Their children and Linda's grandmother were in the car. As they drove past the Ziegler Furniture Store, they heard noise coming from inside. First a loud bang, then rapid-fire bursts of sound. I realize what you heard. No, no, we, sure we really not. didn't. We, we were convinced it was kids with firecrackers, you know, fireworks. But it wasn't fireworks they heard that Christmas Eve. It was gunshots. In four quick seconds, they heard multiple gunshots, at least 12 to 15. As we're going through, maybe actually, if you can make the sounds. What, yeah, what, I, what I'll do, when, when we get to the point to where we were at, about where we were at before, mm -hmm. 
uh, I'll just uh, uh, indicate the large yeah. thing, bang. I don't think I'm gonna get enough acceleration over here. Oh, <laughs> try. yeah. All right, ready? Ready. Bang! I like to. Five seconds. Is that about five? That was how many seconds? That was four, four point five. Is that right? So it's like, you're almost exactly right about the almost seconds yeah. that you you go Her, through heard, in that yeah. moment. Reenacting the drive, Ken and Linda tell us what they never got to tell a jury. Things just don't add up. One man There's can't no, shoot that many guns at one yeah. time. There's no one man can shoot eight guns in four seconds, expending 30 shells or whatever. I don't care who he is. There's just no way that the man could have done it. The Roaches contacted local police to file a report. You know, after we heard that he had been arrested for the murder and that's what had happened here, um, I called the... Uh, Orange County Sheriff's Department and tried to explain to them what I had heard. Lady answered the phone and uh, basically she told me, well, she told me they didn't need to hear that. And that was about, quote, what she said. We don't need to hear that. And I said, well, I thought this may help his case or something. She said she had plenty of other, and other people that said the same thing. So... I asked her if she would tell if she knew who his attorneys were, and she told me, "Well, you can find that out for yourself." And hung up on me. Ziegler's defense didn't learn about the Roaches until 1979, three years after the trial. In 1986, the couple provided affidavits of their account and waited to be called to testify in a post-conviction challenge. They never were. We waited and waited and waited and never heard anything. And I was never called to court. Um, finally, I just said, well, I'll make copies of these affidavits and I'm gonna send them to everybody that I think to send to. 40 years later, the Roaches are still struck by what they heard that night, wishing they had had the chance to testify. Here's the, here's the thing that that has really irked me is how can you put a man on death row on theory? That's that's basically what they convicted that man on was theory. To me, theory is nothing but somebody's idea of what took place from from stuff that they gathered. And my theory is, there's no man that could shoot that many I mean shots out. Of, you know, at one time. I've said all along, if a jury would have heard our testimonies, he'd have never spent the first day in jail. <laughs>